Okay, our um, second speaker uh, in this uh, session is um, Dr. Becky Brown, who hails from the Health Services Research Unit in the University of Aberdeen, where she is a research fellow in applied philosophy and engages in the ethics of health incentives and behavioural changing interventions. Yeah, so as Barry said, my, uh, my background, my interests generally are in kind of public health ethics. Uh, particularly, so I did my PhD on this use of incentives to promote healthy behaviour. I'm, I'm particularly interested generally in kind of legitimate state intervention and where the line between health and not health, other stuff, lies. So, so how far the state can go to kind of, uh, how far the state is allowed to interfere in people's daily lives in pursuing this goal of promoting health. So in the context that I work in, so it's health services research, um, I'm kind of almost on my own as a philosopher. There's a couple of other people who do some kind of philosophy, some bioethics, but most people are scientists or social scientists and clinicians who are interested in looking at kind of very specific kinds of healthcare interventions or tweaks to healthcare interventions or service provisions and whether or not they work. Uh, and there's a lot of division of labour in this context. So there's kind of statisticians, there's trial managers, there's data coordinators. There's lots of methodologists. So people looking at ways of working out how to work out if something works in healthcare. So to say things get kind of narrow is an understatement. And uh, a lot of what I do is trying to say, let's have a bit more of the big picture going on, kind of these questions about what health is, what it means, why we should bother pursuing it and trying to promote it, I think are really important. And uh, particularly in the context of this event, like how we go about doing that. Um, it's not, the only effect isn't just the one on some biomedical health indicator. Like there's lots of things that happen when you have healthcare interventions. So I came to notice, it's, it's a relatively kind of new topic to me, this, and uh, it, it kind of came about, my interest in it, coming back after Christmas in the year, and just have offered someone a biscuit or a slice of cake, and they say, oh, no, 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 thanks, I'm trying to be good. And it's this, uh, it started to grate after a while, and, you know, I'm, I'm sure I've been as kind of guilty, to use another laden term, uh, of doing this in the past as well, but this kind of very free association of good with healthy and bad with unhealthy. Um, and, and what I'm kind of interested in to talk about today, to kind of explore a bit, is how health promotion, how public health promotion activities um, serve to reinforce this kind of moralising effect. And I think this can be both intentional uh, and kind of explicitly trying to kind of perhaps shame or present negative imagery associated with so-called unhealthy behaviours, but also kind of unintentionally. Um, just through the kind of positive, health positive uh, marketing that goes on out there. So, so, so this paper is it's kind of exploratory, and my conclusions are fairly tentative. So, uh, I'm probably just being slightly cowardly and trying not to come over too much criticism. But it's, but it's also that I'm not, you know, I've not kind of fully thought all of these things through. So I really do look forward to uh, questions and tips if any people have some. Um, so the kinds of so so I should say as well I'm using kind of healthy and unhealthy in fairly uncritical way and I think these are the questionable terms uh, so that huge elephant to one side we'll just <laughs> leave it there um, 
the kinds of behaviours that I'm particularly interested in are these so-called lifestyle behaviours. Um, I get told off by the health psychologists that I work kind of closely with, and they say, it's not lifestyle behaviours, it's just behaviours, so we shouldn't really talk about lifestyles or lifestyle. Um, but nonetheless, I'm going to continue. Uh, things like diet, exercise, smoking, and drinking alcohol. So these are kind of the four big ones that um, public health promoters typically go after. And it's because they contribute, to, there's, good, there's good evidence that they contribute significantly to uh, chronic disease in the form of particularly heart disease, lung disease, type 2 diabetes, and various forms of cancer. Um, and so it looks like there's a really good opportunity here to, uh, to promote health. Like targeting these kind of behaviours looks like an excellent way of preventing altogether or reducing or delaying the onset of chronic disease. Um, <clears throat> but as with any area of healthcare, um, I think it's really important to consider the broader implications of actions taken in this context to kind of to try to reduce disease. Uh, and in this instance, it's particularly acute, I think, because we're talking about behaviour change, we're talking about behaviours that are very wrapped up in people's day-to-day -day lives. Um, so lots of the, uh, the public health promoting strategies that have traditionally been preferred um, focus on kind of information provision and education. And I think more recently we've started to call things social marketing, some might say propaganda. Um, these, it's, it's important, like the, the, kind of the party line now is to say, oh, education doesn't really work. Like information provision is kind of, it's, it's not that effective. Well, it seems slightly disingenuous to say that. Clearly, it is often quite effective. Um, but we seem to have reached a point where lots and lots of people know smoking is bad for you. Lots and lots of people know that being overweight and obese is bad for you in some kind of health-related way. Uh, and yet, people continue to engage in behaviours that they're aware contribute to these um, longer-term health, health harms. So this might be because people are quite happy with that, right? So, so it's perfectly plausible that someone smokes, eats exclusively cake and ice cream, um, and they just say, well, look, like I enjoy those behaviours. I'm happy with the health risks that are associated with it. I'd rather do this. That seems fine. Um, but there's also clearly a lot of people who would prefer not to engage in those behaviours. And I think those are the people that offer this, like, public health promoters golden opportunity to get this double win. So you, so you change their behaviour, you improve health, uh, and you also get people behaving in ways that they want to behave in anyway. So you get this kind of warm glow of success. Uh, but if, if that's going to work, then we need to have a much better understanding of behavioural control and behaviour change and what's going what's to actually bring about these kinds of reduced rates of smoking, reduced rates of uh, overeating, lack of exercise, these kinds of things. So lots of these behaviours um, that we're interested in in the context of behaviour change to promote health and reduce chronic disease are what we describe as habitual behaviours. So they're highly context dependent, they're cued by environmental factors, um, and they're often controlled through largely unconscious processes. So so you might become aware, they, they might be kind of pre-conscious processes that you become aware of later on, but at the time they're, kind of, they're not really under conscious control. So although we can consciously intervene in, in these behaviours, uh, it actually takes 
a surprisingly large effort that has to be sustained over time to change them. I read quite recently actually something about establishing new, new habitual behaviours and the paper was making the point of how long it takes to establish new habits, like drinking a glass of water before you have lunch, um, for those to kind of plateau out and become habitual, become easy to do. And then in this paper they said, oh, but this is only for establishing new habits. This is not for breaking old ones. It's much, much harder to give up things that are pre-existing habitual behaviours. Um, so they are really tricky things to change. Uh, there's quite a neat paper that illustrates it quite well from some colleagues of mine at Aberdeen, actually, who, who looked at unintentional eating. And the kind of the cliff, cliff notes of this paper is if you put tasty salted nuts in front of someone, they're going to eat them. And they're not even going to know they're eating them. They're just going to keep going. And then they'll become aware of it and they think, oh, i better stop eating the nuts. I'm not going to eat nuts. And then two minutes later, they're eating the nuts again. So the way to stop people doing that is just to not have nuts there. And that's either going to happen when they've finished eating them, they're all gone, or you take them away. Um, this sounds kind of obvious, but actually, uh, this is something really important in the context of lots of health-related behaviours, that changing the environmental cues and opportunities is probably always going to be more effective um, because you're targeting impulsive, habitual, unconscious behaviours that are largely driven by kind of immediate desires and rewards, and they're kind of not paying attention to long-term health costs. Uh, but those kinds of interventions start to look really problematic in the context of legitimate state intervention. Um, so particularly in the context of bioethics, we're very sensitive about allowing uh, states paternalistic actors to kind of intervene, intervene in people's daily lives in ways that they don't know about. So these kind of invisible, um, invisible forces, invisible interventions. And it sounds kind of manipulative, uh, potentially coercive. So although I don't think these kinds of interventions are going to be entirely unproblematic, uh, I don't think the currently preferred alternative, which is this kind of bombarding people with education and um, educational strategies and information provision, uh, is actually much less worrisome. So the continued focus on these kinds of methods, these inf informative methods for health promotion, just serves to reinforce, whilst also being driven by this false belief that these behaviours are controlled by robust, reflective, um, consciously determined behavioural control processes. And if that's the case, then those things look like they can reflect upon the character of the individual in a much more robust way than if they're, if they're not controlled by these kind of conscious processes. <clears throat> so uh, these kinds of health promotion activities that seek to encourage healthy lifestyles um, go about it by kind of promoting this idealised vision of the healthy person and their healthy life. Um, and it looks very, very optimised. I think this has been mentioned before, that this kind of, uh, this, this is the person who eats exactly the right number of calories every day, it's made up of the right proportion of fat and carbohydrates and plenty of protein, um, now no sugar whatsoever, a tiny bit of salt. Um, they've got the right BMI, they've got the right blood pressure, they don't smoke, for sure they don't smoke, they don't smoke anything, uh, they don't go near anyone who smokes anything, um, they don't drink to excess, and they take kind of the appropriate amount of exercise on a daily basis, or they get the number of 
active minutes on their Fitbits, all these kinds of things. Um, and it seems that this is a product of trying to reduce chronic disease at this population level. Right? So we've kind of lost sight of the individuals and what their lifestyles mean to them. And we're just trying to tweak these parameters so that our rates of obesity and subsequent type 2 diabetes comes down a few percent. Um, so, so we're focusing on kind of people's biomedical risk factors in these very narrow parameters that are now seen as permitted for being in good health. And it gives this very peculiar view of health, so it's no longer a kind of something that's necessary to avoid being like really uncomfortable or unable to work uh, or spend time with family or engage in other fun activities. Um, it's become this optimal state of being, and in doing so, it's kind of become wrapped up in this idea of moral virtuousness, living this kind of virtuous, healthy lifestyle. So I think part of this is undoubtedly due to kind of media and marketing rhetoric and imagery. Um, and this is a context in which there is very little fear of kind of adopting judgmental attitudes um, and embracing, embracing these kind of cliched and often unattainable beauty standards as well, which all gets kind of lumped together um, in this context. But, but those, those areas are undoubtedly able to kind of draw upon these publicly endorsed health promotion activities, uh, which are defining the parameters of health um, very narrowly and uh, focusing heavily on the kinds of behavioral risk factors that we know are overrepresented in socially deprived populations. So this kind of moralization of health-related behaviors um, and aligning health and unhealth with virtue and vice ties in to this uh, historic stigmatization of poverty and the sense that these poor populations of people are in some sense at fault for the conditions they find themselves in because they continue to make bad decisions. And in the healthcare context, this focus on lifestyle-related disease um, where the name itself implies choice. So it's you've chosen this lifestyle. Uh, and it just serves to reinforce this whole kind of attitude. Um, and then this kind of downstream leads to the kind of allocation of responsibility, blameworthiness, and criticism for those suffering from chronic disease. And then on to kind of stigmatization and shame, the kinds of things that this whole workshop is dealing with. I think uh, just want to say briefly a little bit more about this kind of moralization and how it seems that there's two ways in which uh, a kind of a moralization apologist might try and defend it. So there's this kind of more character-based idea where we infer undesirable character traits based upon people's health-related behaviors. So the idea that kind of being overweight or obese or a smoker or drinking too much kind of indicates gluttony or sloth lack of self-control, ill-discipline, those kinds of ideas. The second way is more kind of solidarity-based moralisation. So this is suggest suggesting that you know, you're really not a good citizen because you're knowingly living in a way that's likely to impose burdens on others, on your, um, on, if you have kind of nationalised healthcare system, um, then you becoming ill costs everyone else money. So neither of these forms of moralisation, I think, look particularly convincing when they come under a bit more scrutiny. Uh, and again, this is a fairly shallow treatment of, of the case, but I think it's just to tease out a few more of the issues here. So 
both forms, both the kind of character-based and the solidarity-based moralisations, look like they're going to need a fairly robust responsibility link between the agent, her behaviour, and the diseases that she subsequently suffers from. So although we might be quite happy saying there's a causal link going on there, the importance of the kinds of impulsive, unconscious behavioural control mechanisms that I've described look like they're going to throw a span in the works when it comes to assigning blameworthiness for sure, moral responsibility perhaps. Um, so that looks quite problematic for both forms of moralisation. <clears throat> I think the solidarity-based moralisation looks slightly more interesting and more uh, like it might have more potential, uh, initially at least. So it offers a way for public bodies, for states that want to appear reasonably neutral um, to, to get some purchase for criticising people for adopting unhealthy lifestyles. So this is because you've already got this existing kind of solidaristic framework and you can then criticise people who don't pursue these kind of virtuous lifestyles as failing to abide by the norms of that solidaristic system. But still it looks kind of problematic. So these things, I'm just going to point out a few ways in which it doesn't seem to work that well. They're not knockdown arguments by any means. I just think they make this kind of moralisation look less good, right? So for someone who's inclined to moralise about this, they should probably think twice about it. So uh, first of all, if you're going to criticise this set of health-related behaviours, the ones I've mostly been talking about, um, then you probably need to criticise a whole load more of these behaviours. So skiing, uh, pretty dangerous. You know, lots of broken ankles can happen. Um, childbearing also definitely the, the risks associated with it. Firefighting was an interesting example I saw in someone else's paper recently. Um, divorce, I believe, has kind of health-harming effects. And retirement. Uh, so I'm not saying people should avoid retirement altogether, but definitely your health declines upwards, so probably postpone it uh, for as long as possible. And it looks like we're probably, probably there's not going to be quite so much appetite for stigmatising, criticising, and moralising about these behaviours in the same way. Um, the second, the second way in which it doesn't seem to work that well is this need for the empirical facts to be on your side. Uh, so Paul kind of alluded to this at one point. There's um, there are quite a lot of health economists who are willing to say that smokers contribute more overall than they take from from the kind of the, the national pot of money available for healthcare. Uh, I don't know. I don't know if this is true or not, but it seems that this is going to affect whether or not we can criticise them on this solidarity basis. So there's a question mark there. And it could also be the case with people who are overweight and obese and other kinds of behaviour as well. Um, the final one is that I just find it really weird. So the Daily Mail is a wonderful source for, for straw men. And um, the, the, kind of the way this argument gets presented when it pops up in the Daily Mail is the idea that these people are kind of winning these, these bad, fat smokers are winning somehow because they're taking all this stuff from the NHS. And you kind of think, wow, like, I don't want type 2 diabetes medication. Like, that's, that's no good for me because I'm not ill and I'd rather not be ill and not need the medication. Like, it just seems such a strange way of saying that they're kind of gaining in some sense by getting extra health care. Um, so I just think it makes the whole thing look kind of unappealing. So I don't think that moralisation actually really makes very much sense, although it has this kind of intuitive appeal in this long history. Um, so just to kind of really briefly sum up things that I've tried to, tried to kind of tease out here, uh, it looks like reducing chronic disease through, uh, through behavioural risk factors 
is a legitimate and a commendable state activity in principle, but it needs to be done very carefully. And I should say I'm not in any way anti-health promotion or public health activities. I'm genuinely quite paternalistic. Um, <laughs> um, but there is this inherent tendency to moralise about lifestyle behaviours, and particularly those linked to class and poverty. And there are historic roots going on here in stigmatisation and condemnation of basically of poor people, which is really problematic. Um, so trying to link the moral character of individuals and populations to their health-related behaviours is really tricky. Um, and there are kind of problems that come from metaphysics, that come from pragmatic concerns, and from these political philosophy-based worries about perfectionism that I haven't talked about um, that, are, that kind of raise objections here. So whilst most of these typically seems to be directed at kind of sneaky state interventions, the kinds of nudges that Paul mentioned, um, these things that change environments and look like they're, they're kind of the state pulling strings a little bit in worrying ways, um, and, and that the operate via impulsive and unconscious behavioural control mechanisms. They look like they're kind of, there's unease about them because of these perceived threats to autonomy and freedom that they create. But I would argue that this kind of choice-framed, informational, educational, social marketing style campaigns can be equally and potentially more damaging because of the way in which they serve to reinforce this idealised image of optimum health and healthy lifestyles as being virtuous and also the way in which they lend support to these kind of pre-existing tendencies to moralise about people's lifestyles.